This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Grab your masking tape and make sure the windows are closed. We're about to review the Iranian horror film Under the Shadow. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And inspired by Under the Shadow, we very nearly devoted that entire segment to The Shadow. The 1994 Alec Baldwin movie about the pulp hero who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Then Allison pointed out, uh, I did not realize this, that Under the Shadow is not, as I mistakenly assumed, a sequel to The Shadow. And that the characters in Under the Shadow do not live in the apartment Under the Shadow, hence the title. You know, easy mistake to make. My bad. Instead, let's recommend some other foreign horror films for people to watch. But first, let's do Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to give us the picks. What have you got for us this time? Well, I've got two films that I haven't been able to see yet, but I'm looking forward to catching up with, and one I have seen. The first is one of those that I haven't yet. It is Trespass Against Us, which will be available on demand on January 17th. This is the film directorial debut of Adam Smith, who is probably best known for his longtime work with the Chemical Brothers. He's directed some music videos for them, some concert docs, and he's also designed visual elements for their live shows. Um, Trespass Against Us is a gangster movie that caught my eye because of its two particularly good leads. Michael Fassbender, as a husband and father of two, who's trying to separate himself from the criminal life he grew up in and keeps getting pulled back in, as happens, mostly courtesy of his father, who's played by Brendan Gleeson. And I don't really need much more than Michael Fassbender and Brendan Gleeson in a gangster movie together. You know, I'm a simple girl. And... That sounds, Simple pleasures. That, that sounds like... Uh, Soul. It'll at least give me something. Yeah. So that's Trespass Against Us, available on demand on the 17th. 
available on demand now is Claire in Motion. This is a new film written and directed by Annie J. Howell and Lisa Robinson, who before that made the festival rounds with a movie called Small Beautifully Moving Parts. This new film like stars. That movie. Yeah, it was a nice movie. This new film stars Breaking Bad's Betsy Brandt as the title character, a woman named Claire, who is a mathematician who's felt her life uh, with her husband and their son was stable until that husband just disappears one day when he's out in the woods. And it's unclear whether he got hurt and lost or whether he intentionally vanished. So part of a tradition uh, of movies about characters mysteriously disappearing and leaving people behind to kind of reel in their absence. And this one uh, apparently also deals with what our expectations are of how someone should behave when they're grieving, which is a topic that I find really interesting. So that is Claire in Motion, and that is now available on demand. Also now available on demand is Nerdland. This is an animated comedy that is definitely not aimed at kids. It is aimed at adults, especially adults who like, you know, uh, foul-mouthed animation and satires about Hollywood. It's about two friends, voiced by Patton Oswalt and Paul Rudd, mm. who have been failing to make it, respectively, as a screenwriter and an actor in Los Angeles, and they are on the verge of turning 30, at which time you, oh my um, God. you get shipped off and executed. Right, it's uh, Logan's run. Yes, and, and, and then recycled into green juice. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles. Uh, It's a terrible price you pay, but the weather is excellent. (laughs) Uh, They decide to try and take a shortcut to success via viral fame, uh, which they try to achieve with a variety of ill-conceived plans that soon starts escalating towards something dark, like, say, a murder spree. Uh, This movie has some great voice talent in addition to Oswald and Rudd. You've got Hannibal Burris, Kate Michucci, Ricky Lindholm, John Ennis, and Mike Judge. So if you are a fan of uh, R-rated comedy, there you go. Nerdland is now available on demand. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. It's time for this episode of Filmspotting SVU's Listener's Choice Review, as chosen by a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. The options this time were a trio of recent horror movies, and the results were a bit of a landslide. Over half the votes went to Under the Shadow, while The Autopsy of Jane Doe and They Look Like People received 31 and 14% of the votes respectively. Under the Shadow is the directorial debut of Iranian filmmaker Babak Anvari, and it's set in Iran in the 1980s during the brutal war between Iran and Iraq. And in the film, a young mother named Shida is left alone to care for her daughter, Dorsa, after her husband, who is a doctor, is drafted and sent to the front lines. Uh, The mother studied to be a doctor too, but the recent revolution in Iran and her political activities during the revolution mean She's basically 
cut off from having a career. She can't pursue it any further and is basically trapped at home as a mom, something that becomes almost literally true when these bombings in Tehran intensify all around them. And Shida's anxieties about motherhood, parenting, uh, life under this sort of religious fundamentalist government rise as both she and her daughter, daughter slowly become convinced that they are under attack from a, a jinn, which is basically an Islamic version of a of a ghost or a spirit. So, Allison, uh, this movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival last year. We're on the verge of the Sundance Film Festival of 2017, as we're recording this. And when it premiered there, Under the Shadow was very widely praised by critics. It was acquired for distribution by Netflix. And it drew a lot of comparisons to The Babadook, another story about a lonely mother who's caring for a sick child, as they both seem to be either succumbing to or fighting off an attack from something that sort of blurs the line between madness and a supernatural presence of some kind. So my question to kick us off here is how do you compare Under the Shadow to The Babadook? And what do you think of the way these movies use these horror tropes as allegories for mental illness? It's an interesting question because I do feel they are very obviously similar. There are a lot of similarities to their structure, to the ways in which they keep you wondering about the reality of the haunting that is going on. But I would say that... That one, like the Babadook is about, is I think very explicitly about mental illness and also about, uh, about the idea that you might not be a good thing for your child, about this fear that you are actually the monster, you know, that Mm -hmm. uh, you have this character who is tired and lonely and uh, sometimes you can tell, you could almost feel feel her squirm away from how much time she's been spending with her child. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think a lot of the Babadook's turmoil is about psychological anxiety, particularly with regard to this role of motherhood and this uh, versus like role of womanhood and, and kind of like adequacy as a parent fears about that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that under the shadow is a lot about external fears being put on Shide, you know? It's not just the fact that they are living in a city that is just being bombed so regularly that in that opening scene, she's talking to the the university professor who's about to tell her she can't come back to school ever. And a missile like hits the city outside in the window, right. and they look. They just sort of look and over, then and then they go of, like, back go to back that conversation. To the conversation. Yeah. You know, it's like about normalized war right. being like normalizing being under siege. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of that, you know. I mean, in a way, this movie reminds me as much about the Devil's Backbone. Uh, you know, there is like there was the same unexploded bomb, you know, mm-hmm. there. But I think also, I think a lot of this movie, and the reason that I like it so much, and that I think it kind of it stands up well for me despite similarities to the Babadook is that it is about her kind of dread of the shrinking prospects for her and then for her daughter. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a mistake that they have a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, that you have someone who has gone from this potential career to suddenly like seeing her own horizons, like shrunk dramatically and then to wondering exactly what she's going to be able to do for her daughter. And I, I think that that contrast works for me, you know, that, that it, is, it is more about these external forces than it is about 
specifically internal ones. Mm -hmm. But how about you? How do you feel that these movies compare or don't compare, particularly with regard to the mental illness question? Yeah, well, I think you did a a terrific job of sort of showing while uh, explaining while structurally and sort of conceptually they're very similar. Like they're about different anxieties. I think that's very – you sort of – elucidated that perfectly i guess for me the issue that i have with both of these movies and it may just be a taste or personal preference issue is that i love their setups and i love when they're more about like anxiety or mental illnesses or just more relatable down-to-earth elements and that when they get more supernatural i find that i get less invested and less interested and i don't know if again this could be a personal preference thing because people love both of these movies i'm sort of on the i like sort of appreciate both of them like both of them okay but i find that i like i when people talk about their enthusiasms for them i often don't share them and i i honestly don't entirely know why that is but watching this movie uh, and and loving the first like thirty minutes so much and thinking this is an incredible movie and then when it was over thinking yeah I didn't you know like it, it just sort of lo- at some point it lost me and I didn't even almost realize it as I was watching it I just it seems to me like it's something about the supernatural elements and I'm not really sure why it is uh, maybe it's the fact that I'm a nervous person who has a lot of anxiety in my life and I really relate to some of the scenes where there's no supernatural elements you don't want the out of having the potential of yeah to, maybe it, yeah i think i think i think so i to me the movies are much scarier when there's no ghost well did you think that i mean obviously like the babadook under the shadow keeps that question open but like did you feel at the end that it was about a haunting really like well whether it is or not there's a lot of and i, I don't mean i don't think this is really a spoiler but there's a lot of sort of like ghosty sort of stuff sure there's enough imagery that if you want to say they they actually are being haunted you could convince you could you could argue that right like I, I you you could maybe interpret it otherwise but i don't know there's a lot of supernaturally stuff and just the fact that there's so much talk about these these uh, demons or ghosts or whatever they are. It just I don't know sure. when it's when it's like to me like the best scene in this movie was the one where she wants to just exercise but she has to close the shades because no one because it's illegal to freaking have a Jane Fonda exercise tape. Sure. Like to me that kind of scene that little detail is incredible. Like I don't I almost don't need the ghosts and all that stuff. Right, but then you're not making a horror movie. Uh, well, you like, are to me. You are to me. Sure. There's nothing more terrifying a, than being not making a genre movie in right. that way. And I but recognize that. I, I will say this. I mean, a djinn is not just like a demon. It's not a lot of people just being like talking about, you know, oh, it's like haunting. It's also, it's in the Quran, mm. you know, like the religious downstairs neighbor is mm. the one who like talks about it and kind of yeah, scolds that's her. That's fair. You know, and I think that in some ways, the kind of her feeling of like irrationally starting to open up to this woman who's like uh, wants to be a doctor, right. educated, like doesn't uh, not religious. You know, she has this very kind of like right. sturdy middle class life. Yeah, they and she doesn't wear the head covering she except when she has covering. to. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not not particularly observant. That she. Uh, you know, become susceptible to this in part because she is not sleeping and is like very anxious. But in part, also, you have this feeling of like the changing times. Right. My favorite scene in this movie is the one where she is so frightened that she and Dorsa, she grabs Dorsa and runs out of the house, mm-hmm. you know, in a panic after something frightening has happened. And she runs into the street and she gets picked up by the morality police right. who 
scold her for not being properly covered up, including wearing a headdress. You mm. know, she they end up like sitting there overnight and she gets told that it would be better for a woman to die than to run out into the street improperly and immodestly covered. I mean, I think that is such like a dark joke in a horror movie to have that. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally fair. And I think, like, on an intellectual level, I recognized all of that going on. But at the same time, like, a lot of the scenes that are more overtly uh, supernatural are just didn't really, they didn't work for me. Yeah, see, I feel like this movie takes a, a lot. I mean, this is true in The Babadook as well. But, like, this movie also, like, ties in, like, the the djinn, when you see them, they look like, right, the upstairs neighbor who dies, her yeah. failure as, right. like, a doctor. Mm-hmm. And they look like uh, the chador, the like right. ghostly chador, which is like, I think, a very distinctive touch. This like, you know, a headscarf that like becomes this figure, this like spectral figure is like the pattern in the background of the photo of her mother. Sure. You know, the mother who had all of these expectations for her. Right. And I think that it, for whatever you want to make of this as like supernatural, like all of these elements get tied so directly into parts of her life and her experiences. Mm -hmm. It is made very explicitly to seem like a reflection of, of her personal anxiety. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's all fair. That's all fair. And I also felt like, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the, 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 the husband is sent away there there. She refuses to leave. This is her home. She's going to stay, even though it's very dangerous. He wants her to leave. Like her, it's implied that, uh, her in-laws don't like are her. not nice. Yeah, yeah they don't, they don't like, like her, her basically. Um, but th- and then like one by one, like the people sort of vanish from the building until they're almost the only ones left. And it's sort of I- I- I'm sure if you have a better understanding of what was going on in Iran at this time, I feel I'm sure that that's sort of a more even more you know kind of metaphorical uh, view of sort of what was going on in the entire country. And I so I, I, again I like I'm watching it and recognizing all these things that you're pointing out too. I just like on an emotional level, I found myself sort of strangely disconnected from some of the stuff at the end of the movie. Do you feel that you prefer horror that does not have a psychological element? You mean a supernatural element? No, I mean that oh, just, if you want your it, horror, supernatural horror, do you prefer it to just be kind of like maybe sheared of? I don't know. Like, These are not things that I've sort of like intellectualized before. It's not like just sort of trying to like almost understand my own preferences now as a result of having seen this movie and The Babadook. It's like when I saw The Babadook, I was just like, okay, I just didn't like it that much. I liked it. It was fine. But now that I've seen these two movies, which are very similar in so many ways, and found that I've had similar reactions and that the consensus was different than that reaction, now I'm trying, now I'm like sort of in retrospect kind of trying to understand why it is that I, that I've reacted this way. I'm still not sure. I'm, I'm being totally honest here with my reaction no, and my that. sort of uncertainty about it. But yeah, it just like, I, I literally, like, in the first, like, 30 minutes was like, this is a masterpiece. And then at the end of the movie, I was like, it was, it was all right. It was good. You know, and I respect the guy who made it. I think he I mean, clearly set out to make the movie he wanted to make. And all the things you're pointing out, I completely agree with. It's a very smart movie. It just, at a certain, it, even though the more overtly scary things are all in the second half of the movie, I was n- almost never scared by them. And I was much more scared by just the intense atmosphere of this place at this time where you feel so closed in and everything like that yeah i see i always i often wonder since this type of movie is like my sweet spot for horror the kind of like falling in between the kind of art house film and the genre film is like my sweet spot and it's certainly a lot of critics sweet spot i think that you know when you look at the praise for like it follows and for good night mommy and for the witch are all films that i would put in the same place mm-hmm. where you're like they're not necessarily 
films that will go over as well with the hardcore like horror horror fans right like right. the hounds and all of that right they are character driven they're kind of uh psychology driven you know uh or tend to be a bit more and i feel like sometimes i wonder myself that like is my tendency to like those sort of films because i just i i, I don't like regular horror as much mm-hmm. i need it to be I don't know, to be like intellectualized in this way that kind of like you might say dampens some of the the kind more overt genre elements, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'm I'm half-assing horror. But I but I, I don't I, do. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I mean those other movies you mentioned, I haven't seen Good Good Night Mommy, was that it? I haven't seen that one. But the other two, I love the both of those movies. So um, I don't know. I, to me, like, although I, you're right that they're they're not just you know mainstream horror movies. They're sort of I don't know art house horror, indie horror, whatever you want to call them. Um, I'm not sure why those worked for me better than than these other ones did. I, I'd have to again, I'd have to think more about that. But I don't know. I I I can't say that I'm like a huge fan of just like blood like blood and guts horror. Although there are some bloody horror movies that I do like a lot. To me, it's it's less about the you know, the specifics than the execution. I, I wouldn't want to make any rules about, oh, I only like horror movies that are really bloody or I don't like horror movies that are really bloody. I don't know. It's, um, I, again, it's another, it's like I, I respect the heck out of this movie and I, I liked it. I'm glad I watched it. I would recommend people to, to check it out. But it's a, it is a case where I'm sitting here after the fact going, you know, I just, I find a disconnect like emotionally, intellectually, it works, absolutely. But just emotionally and, and uh, on a, scare horror level or just even an emotional level of connecting with the characters at a certain point i began to sort of drift drift away a little bit all right well we're we're a little split on that that is under the shadow you can find it on netflix of the neat things about Under the Shadow is how culturally specific its haunting is. As we mentioned, it's Jin who come in, you know, and who maybe enter the building through this this missile that crashes into the top of the, the apartment building. Mm-hmm. There's the chador. There's the... It, it's grounded. Its fears are grounded in particular cultural fears uh, that are specifically Iranian. And there's something really neat about that, you know, in the same way that we have American horror conventions. It's uh, I really like seeing uh, different cultural ghosts uh, and scary things crop up in, in horror films. And so we are going to talk about horror films from countries other than America uh, in this shots and uh i don't know i've got one from england which is a kind of boring pick but i have one from someplace interesting that, that doesn't send off a lot of movies but how about you i'm getting a lot of angry 
English listeners who are going to be infuriated well, that you said that's boring. It is, a, like, in terms of picking another country with uh, traditions vastly different from our own. Fair. It is kind of boring. That's fair. I guess that's fair. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, well, my picks are both from Asia. I didn't really uh, necessarily um, plan it that way or, you know, there wasn't anything sort of deliberate about it other than just I made a list of movies that first came to mind and I looked to see what was available and what I could rewatch a few scenes from and these were the ones I picked. I guess my first one I'm going to go with here is, well, it's... <sighs> It's a very difficult movie to talk about, describe, even summarize, uh, because I think I feel like this is a movie where whenever you describe it, it sounds kind of terrible. So you kind of just have to take someone's word and see it for yourself. But uh, if I have to give you the elevator pitch, I guess it would be it's The Goonies or maybe almost Scooby-Doo meets Evil Dead 2. It is House from 1977. This is a Japanese horror film. And the director's name is Nobuhiku Obayashi. It's a very strange, very surreal, uh, often very scary, and occasionally kind of hilarious movie about a group of teenagers who travel to visit one of these uh, girls' uh, aunt, who lives far away from where they live. And once they arrive at the aunt's house, I mean, just all hell breaks loose, basically. They come under attack from uh, cats. I think there are posters that attack them. I know there's a piano definitely attacks them there might be some killer kimonos in the film i'm not entirely sure and and that, that's really just the tip of the iceberg it is it is just i, I love this movie because it is so kind of just nuts i mean i can guarantee even with that those sort of superficial comparisons of what it's kind of like you you if you haven't seen this movie you've never seen anything like it and i mean i know we're doing foreign horror here it definitely does feel foreign but i would say it feels foreign like not just to our country but maybe to like our planet like it just seemed beamed in from another universe to me and that's part of what i um love about it we didn't really talk about the special effects in under the shadow actually uh and some of them i thought looked a little not great i thought it's a low budget it's a low budget movie and it shows and you know like looking at a few scenes from house again sort of in that context i mean house is not exactly a lavish picture but it has these sort of practical effects which you know i i don't i think sometimes the sort of fetishization of practical over digital sometimes it just seems a little maybe just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake but in house there's something amazing about these special effects which are both hideous and also I, i think oddly beautiful um and the way that the sort of effects and the gore and the horror and these very strange surreal images work you really do feel watching it that you're being slowly dragged into this like dream that keeps turning darker and darker into like a nightmare it's like the dream that you turn a corner in a dream you're having and suddenly you realize you're being chased by someone or you're fall- about to fall off a cliff or whatever it is that the, the, not the nightmare that's just constantly terrifying. The, the dream that seems pleasant and then all of a sudden with, on, a, on a dime turns into a nightmare that's basically inescapable. That you're just – you're trapped. Something is going to get you and destroy you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think that this movie captures that in a way that very few uh, movies do. And I was, you know, I was looking as part of like what should I talk about today and I was looking at my DVDs and my Blu-rays and I realized, looking at them, I don't own a lot of horror movies. I guess I just don't like to, probably because I don't like to re-watch the same horror movies over and over again. But I own House and I put it on every so often even just to watch a few scenes like the piano scene or the scene at the end where, well, I don't, I don't even want to spoil it, but, I, but it's just a movie that I return to 
uh, to be frightened of and to admire that sort of demented vision in it. And just as this thing that feels like it shouldn't even exist. I don't, I, I don't understand it, but I love it. Uh, so yeah, that's House. It, uh, it is available right now for rent. Well, my first pick is also from Asia. Uh, it is from Laos, which is not a country that tends to get a lot of movies out there onto the international scene. Uh, this is uh, a movie called Dearest Sister, which is recently added to Shudder. It is exclusive to Shudder. And it comes from a filmmaker named Maddie Doe, who's both the first female director of a Lao film and uh, maybe the first director of a Lao horror film. Uh, her, her debut, which is called Chantali, played at Fantastic Fest, I think, in 2013. Uh, then she released it into the public domain. You can find it online. This new film, Dear Sister, uh, was also at Fantastic Fest. And is addition, in addition to being, uh, you know, part of this kind of landmark moment in, in terms of what Doe represents for for the Lao film industry, is very good. Though I will say it falls into now that I've mentioned my particular fondness for like psychology driven and kind of character driven horror films that I think like do consign the the supernatural to like is it really there or. It's kind of secondary. Uh, this is definitely one of those. It is about a young woman named Nock who is summoned from the village in which she grew up to the capital of Vientiane to help out a cousin she's never met named Anna. Uh, Anna is living a far plusher life, courtesy of having married a European expat, an Estonian man named Jakob. Anna's also been struggling with this medical condition. That's why Nook was called. She's been losing her eyesight while gaining a new sense that she does not want. There are kind of shades of the eye to this. She keeps seeing these shadowy figures in the backs or corners of rooms. And when she makes a mistake of making eye contact with them, they kind of come up to her and leave her in this traumatized state, murmuring strings of numbers. Dearest Sister is, as horror films go, pretty mild in terms of the ghouls. Uh, its scariest aspect actually comes from these issues of class and economics and greed that poison all of its characters' lives. Jakob is, it, I, in kind of like one of the great like bits of shorthand, is just like a kind of standard uh, ethically questionable expat in, in a developing nation. He's skimming money from uh, the NGO he's working for. It makes a reference of not being able to go back to Europe. Um, but he genuinely loves Anna, who is who has become kind of imperious and mean with her staff, uh, her staff, the house staff. Uh, her husband's money has kind of like raised her status. When Nuck comes, she doesn't even want her to sleep in the house. She wants her to sleep out with the servants for a while. And then Nock herself is lonely in the city where she knows no one, but also has access to cash for the first time. And she starts... Uh, being tempted to spend some on herself instead of just sending it home. You know, she'd get a new phone, buy some clothes, eat at a restaurant, uh, and, and then finds herself in a tougher ethical dilemma when, as she grows closer to Anna, she starts to realize that the numbers Anna is murmuring in the middle of these traumatized and often self-harming episodes happen to be winning lottery numbers. Uh, it's, it's, and then the movie kind of escalates from there to this dark place. It's, very smartly done and cleverly shot for what was clearly a low-budget movie. And uh, especially in terms of the claustrophobia of the house that these characters live in, this house that represents 
like almost represents a step up in terms of class. Like Nock is allowed inside and then she's consigned outside for a while, not allowed to sleep inside of it. Like uh, the kind of promise of moving up in the world and the anxiety about it is just like there uh, everywhere in all of these characters' lives. And it kind of makes them act in some terrible ways. It's uh, a movie that has a fairly dark assessment of all of its characters, but I, I was really thrilled to see it. It just felt unusual and new and uh, definitely worth a look. That is Dearest Sister, and it is on Shudder. I've been hearing about that movie and that filmmaker. I haven't seen any of her work yet. That sounds great. I have to, I have to, I guess there's no my list on Shudder, but whatever the equivalent would be, I've got to put it on there. And actually my next pick, while it is also available for rent, is available on Shudder, which I think we've mentioned before. It's this horror, specifically horror leaning streaming service. So if, if this topic interests you, well, you probably might already be a subscriber, but if you're not, you might want to check it out because this is really a great resource for these sorts of movies, especially. Yeah, they have, they've been going out of their way to find movies like Dearest Sister and things right. like that, where you're like, it's not just your standard selection of things you would think of when you think of horror. It's, right. They've got very esoteric taste. Yes. So earlier when we were talking about Under the Shadow, we were talking about the types of horror movies we like and whether or not, you know, you might like a, a just like a bloody horror movie more or less than any other kind. And I can't say that I have a... a preference for any specific kind that i'm aware of uh but I, I don't generally sort of i'm not excited when a movie is extremely bloody probably that should be a good thing i would think but my next pick is a, is a very a very violent and gory and bloody movie and it might be one of the bloodiest and goriest and un, uh, most unsettling movies that i really like a lot it is i saw the devil and it's a this is a Korean film. It's from director Kim Ji Woon. It is available again for rent or on Shutter. And uh, the movie begins with this man played by Choi Min Sik from Old Boy. He kills this woman on a quiet road, and I think theoretically he probably could have gotten away with this crime, except for the fact that the woman he killed turned out to be the fiance of who is essentially like the Korean James Bond. He is this super spy who's played by uh, Lee Byung-hun from Terminator Genesis is how I, I'm sure he would prefer to be thought of as as the T-1000 from Absolutely. Terminator Genesis. Or from his work in, in G.I. Joe movies. Yes, yes, as Storm Shadow. Yeah, very proud. His American career, not always uh, full of the highest highs, but he's a fine, fine actor. He He... He deserves better parts in uh, Hollywood. Maybe we'll, maybe that'll happen someday. That would be nice. But anyway, uh, his character, instead of just finding and killing the murderer, he decides that's basically, you know, that's not enough punishment for this monster. So instead, he starts hunting him and, you know, kind of following him, stalking him. And then whenever the killer is about to kill again... He interrupts him. It's like he's giving him serial killer blue balls would be the best way to describe it. And he's using innocent people as bait. And as you might expect, this plan does not go smoothly. And it becomes clear eventually that the hero, quote unquote, in this scenario is maybe not that much better than the villain, quote unquote, in this scenario. And when I reviewed this movie back in 2010, I wrote, it's not really a game of cat and mouse so much as it is a game of a cat and another equally scary cat who maybe is a little nicer, maybe-ish. Who knows? The uh, the violence in this movie and the sort of 
very cold, dispassionate way that it's often filmed is scary. And there's some very troubling and disturbing scenes. But I feel like the moral implications of what's going on here is the really frightening part. And again, the idea that he's playing this sort of classical movie character, the the, the super spy. You know, I, I always think he's like it's like a James Bond. It was like this sociopath but you know and and i guess sometimes they portray james bond as maybe cold or you know he's willing to kill people and that sort of thing but he's always kind of doing it for queen and country he's always there's some sort of virtuousness to his violence and here that 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 the hero is the fact that he is you know the, the idea that maybe the cure is worse than the disease is something that I find very troubling. And then the idea that's also in the movie is almost that as the film goes on, the characters keep stumbling into these situations where there are just randomly, there's like other crimes being committed, other murderers, other killers. It's almost like the whole society around them, that it's like rotted almost or just diseased in some way. I don't know. There's something about that like... Well, there's that scene where... The, a character flags down a taxi. It's yes. like my, one of my favorite scenes yes. in this movie. It's amazing. And just a random taxi. He's yes. like, and and he gets in, and it ha- ha- turns out the guys who are driving the taxi have like the real taxi driver in the trunk. Right. They've killed the taxi driver. He's in the trunk, and and then there's this wild fight in the middle of the moving taxi. The camera spinning around it. And they are not related otherwise. No. They are just two random killers. No, although He's, later that, uh, another character, or maybe the same character, I don't want to spoil it, goes to like sort of a friend who is also, like he has like serial killer buddies, basically. Right. And this person is, uh, I believe, a cannibal. So it just, it's it's very, very troubling. But I, uh, it's like the sort of world that's troubling, terrifying, horrifying, but I, I, sort, of, I sort of love the sort of, um, the purity of it in a way. It's a very pure vision of this horrible universe. Um, and it's a movie I've seen a few times, and it always sticks with me. There are images and shots and scenes, including the one Allison just mentioned, that like I will never forget. So that is I Saw the Devil. It is available for rent or on Shutter. All right. That's a great movie. I would second that one. So for my final pick, I picked a movie that, as mentioned, is from the U.K., Apologies to the UK if I sound dismissive of it. But it is a movie that I think really is dependent on the tension that comes from people from the moment in which that polite veneer breaks, you know, in which in which the terrible reality of what's actually happening comes through. It is a movie called Asylum, and it is streaming on Fandor. There are a bunch of movies named Asylum. Uh, This is the one from 1972 from Amicus Productions, who made a bunch of uh, horror anthology films around that time. Asylum is one of those, and is actually considered, I believe, the best of them. And I think it works in part because of that aforementioned sheen of politeness, that it is about the difference between what we would consider sanity and what we would consider insanity and like where that line actually lies. Um, It's uh, it is called asylum because it's set at an asylum for the quote unquote incurably insane. Mm. And Robert Powell, who plays Dr. Martin, who arrives at the Institute for what he thinks is a job interview only to learn that the former head of the hospital that he was supposed to talk to has recently joined the ranks of the inmates. Oh, no. Yes. And the other doctor there comes up with this test, which he goes with, where he says, how about you just go talk to the patients 
and try and figure out which one is the former doctor. And if you can figure it out, then you will get the job. That's a great premise. Yeah. And so we get these multiple stories, one involving a husband and wife and infidelity and voodoo that, that then comes down to this great, great sequence involving the chopped up body parts of a murder victim, like reanimating. And they're all wrapped in paper like like packages like they're wrapped in paper and tied and uh shaking my head and making icky noises it offers a really kind of like tremendous visual that should be silly but is actually just eerie in the practical effects of it like Mm. how clearly it is like someone's head (laughs) like just wrapped in paper (laughs) um there's one that involves a tailor being commissioned to make a suit that turns out to have sinister power. That one uh, stars the late Peter Cushing. Nice. So recently and ghoulishly, terrifyingly, <laughs> you might say, the most is, horrifying of all. I was going to say, is he scarier in life, in real life in <laughs> Asylum, or was he scarier he was, as a uh, CGI yes, monster in Rogue One? Uh, Someone from the Uncanny Valley to uh, terrify <laughs> us all in Rogue One. Uh, but my personal favorite is the third story. Which involves a young woman played by Charlotte Rampling, uh, who is being brought from, we quickly learn, a stay, a previous stay at an asylum, being brought home by her brother, and keeps talking about her old friend Lucy, who eventually shows up and is played by, played by Britt Eklund. And as you start to wonder, you start to wonder if Lucy is real, or if Lucy is maybe this kind of expression uh, of this main character's destructive id but uh it's really nicely done in part because charlotte rampling plays the character as so outraged you know so uh like positioned almost as if she's being kind of like um yellow wallpapered you know she's uh being told to go to bed in the afternoon to rest by this nurse who's been hired she's afraid that her brother is like trying to use her to because like she was the one who was left the house her their parents house she has all of these fears that people around her are trying to gaslight her. And then the, the story turns around in another direction that I thought was really nicely done. And then the framing story comes all around again. And I will not spoil that. But uh, it's, it's done in a way that I think really kind of uh, hammers in the idea of madness, insanity, uh, and, and like deciding who gets to be on what side of that line, uh, it, it really kind of like makes it uh, a good kind of message. And uh, and then, uh, you know, leaves the story open to continue in a dark direction. Uh, so that is Asylum. It is uh, a really great example of a horror anthology film and uh, one from decades ago. And that is on Fandor. It sounds really good. I'm going to check that one out. Now is the time on Sprockets where we talk about new releases, but uh, we were looking at what's been coming out. We're like, have you seen this? Nope, they didn't screen it. What about that? Nope, they haven't screened that for anyone yet. So we're going to talk briefly instead about a couple of movies that are sort of expanding to wider release this weekend or last weekend or in the in the days ahead, a couple of the so-called awards contenders, or though I don't know if any of these movies will really make a big uh, impact no, at the Oscars. No, they don't seem to be going anywhere. We each have one that we can talk about that the other hasn't seen, but we're going to talk first about the one that we've both seen, which is Silence, the latest film from Martin Scorsese, a passion project 
if ever there's been one, and also in like the passion in terms of like religious, you know, in that sort of sense, right? Religious it's all suffering. Ab- yes, it exactly. Is. It is all about is characters a- suffering on behalf of their faith. Exactly. It's a passion project from top to bottom for Martin Scorsese. He's been trying to make it for decades. Finally got it made. He's got <laughs> Andrew Garfield, noted Portuguese actors, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver playing these. Portuguese Jesuit uh, priests who the 17th century right they travel to Japan to it's basically saving Padre Ryan as a premise they're going there to find find Liam Neeson their their mentor who's sort of vanished mysteriously wrote this letter that finally arrives like months or even years later and they so they sort of look to see if where is he what happened to him is he still alive Uh, hunt him down uh, this is set in Japan when uh, Christianity has somewhat recently, like twenty years ago, been right, banned. Right, and it's illegal to it's practice. Illegal. The it's priests underground have been tortured. Thing. Yeah. Anyone who's a convert has been tortured. People get asked to step on this image of either Jesus Christ or right. Mary you to know, prove that to they prove are not believers. Yeah. Right. So, uh, what did you think of Silence? Uh, I did not. I don't particularly like silence, but I've been thinking about it a lot oh, ever really? since I saw it. Really? Yeah, I do think it has a, there's certainly a richness to it. Mm-hmm. It's funny that it is, it's it's Scorsese's passion project though, because I do feel like it is deeply lacking passion in in terms of how it's, like its characters all constantly express these like great emotions. And yet the movie itself feels like very dispassionate to me. Yeah. And like a slog a lot of times. Yes. And I, I, and yet, I think that there's something about the question, the intellectual question that it kind of asks about both faith when the, when when God is silent, you right. know, but also about maybe more interestingly the division between acting in a Christian way versus maintaining a Christian identity that mm. I think is fascinating. And also particularly fascinating when held up against Andrew Garfield's other religious movie of this season, Hacksaw <laughs> right. Ridge, which is also about maintaining a Christian identity right. versus Christian behavior in uh, when you are right. being asked to make compromises. From the guy who really knows how to make a passion film, right. literally. Yeah, Absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, so I guess it has been on my mind a lot but i i don't particularly like it as mm-hmm. a movie well i haven't been thinking about it much but everything else you said i pretty much agree with and that there are there are such interesting ideas rooted in this film and and if you get caught up in them it's they're interesting to mull over but i was pretty bored watching the movie like i can't deny that and i get it like the movie is about largely and i i guess this is kind of a spoiler a little bit so if you don't want to know this i don't know i guess fast forward 30 seconds or a minute or whatever but it's you know i i say it's like saving padre ryan but it's not like at a certain point fairly early on it mostly becomes andrew garfield's character sort of just imprisoned and wrestling with this dilemma of do I apostatize and step on this image or renounce my faith to spare other people's lives right. or not? Which- and he's also like he and uh, and Adam Driver's character seem very willing and are like mentally prepared to sacrifice themselves. Like yes. martyrdom is almost this easy choice for them. Yes, they would they would definitely prefer that. Right, and they're faced instead with this much tougher dilemma, which right. is to be like when other people are being tortured, right, to make you change your mind. Like right. at what point? Yeah. And then live with that because they're not going to kill right. you. They're going to make you right. live as it's a... It's about surrendering your identity as opposed right. to surrendering your life. It is about surrendering... It's about uh, like surrendering your Europeanness, surrendering mm-hmm. your religiousness, surrendering your position as a priest. Right. And it's also about 
um, you know, believing so strongly that you, what you believe is right and to do what they want you to do would be wrong, even though that will come at the expense of other people's lives and how the, that conflict, you know, it's an interesting conflict. I just felt like, you know, the movie repeats that conflict in every, like every, there's just not enough sort of variety to what's going on. It's just, I really, you said, I think you said it's a slog and it, it really is. And I guess you can't make a fun movie about this subject, but I feel like you could make a, again, like you said, a more passionate or just a more dynamic movie about it. And I, I sort of respected the craft and, and the ideas, the oh, intelligence. Some beautiful framing. And there are it. some great sequences. There's a sequence with um, these believers when they're um, sort of tied up on this on this uh, waterfront as the right. tide is rising. They're almost like crucified, crucified, uh, left to the ocean. And that sequence alone is incredible. Like it's uh, it's got to be one of the best sequences Martin Scorsese's ever done. And that like that sequence is like that sequence I've thought about. Like that sequence is haunting. But it's just. I mean, maybe it goes gets down to a, a matter of I didn't think. I mean, it, Adam Driver's fine, whatever. He's not in that much of the movie. No, for someone who was like billed very highly, right? Like, it's he really for a long. It's search. really Andrew Garfield's film. I just I didn't think he was that good in the movie. I have to tell I you, he was good, but I think he was working with a character who was almost there as an embodiment of this particular theological dilemma, right? And I don't. I mean, he has no. He's there as like an, like a kind of like idealistic young pure embodiment of faith getting tested and tested yeah. by like real dilemmas. That's it. Like he's barely a person, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Well. well, we pretty much agree on that. All right. Well, but it's it's a Martin Scorsese movie. It's uh, it's exquisitely made. I, yeah, and I would say if, if if anything we've described sounds very interesting to you, it you know go I and just, wrestle with it. I also like. I really do think that it and Hacksaw Ridge are fascinating together making a double bill the fact that they both happen to star andrew garfield and they both are set in japan Mm. is incidental but but great (laughs) uh you know i think that they 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 almost like push against each other in terms of of what they want to celebrate Mm -hmm. of what it means to have your faith uh be kind of tested by the idea of the kind of greater good or other people okay very briefly let's talk about these other movies we've already probably spent more time than we should on this segment so let's just very quickly my movie that i was going to talk about is the founder this is the michael keaton uh biopic he plays ray crock who's not actually the founder of mcdonald's that's sort of the point of the movie um it's about him sort of resting control of the company from the actual founders there actually were two dudes named mcdonald brothers who started the chain and he was this floundering um, milkshake machine salesman who kind of uh, they bought some equipment from him. He shows up to go, why do they want all these um, milkshake machines? Discovers that they've cre- created like his, you know, like this amazing thing, wants to be a part of it and sort of worms his way into the company and then sort of takes it over from within. It's fine. Like the history of McDonald's is actually pretty interesting when you see the origins of of the company and everything like that. But it doesn't it doesn't seem to have any opinion about what this guy did. And like, what was what he did? Good. Was what he did? Bad. Is McDonald's good? Is McDonald's bad? Like it has no opinion about anything that happens on screen. And it, 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 it doesn't, I don't know. It, it has no interest in Ray Kroc even as like a man. He's just a vehicle to tell this story about like the early days of McDonald's. And you just go, this 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 guy is one of the most important men, arguably of the of the American twentieth century. For what in terms of the business, right? Absolutely, 
and to just kind of just say, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he did this, and then he did that. And, uh, you know, they, there's a little bit about his private life, but almost so little that you're just, like, embarrassed that they even brought it up. Like, uh, Laura Dern is in this movie as his, like, poor suffering wife who looks so sad. But not because the wife is sad, but because, like, her character has, like, two scenes and nothing to do. And then they don't even – they sort of, like – you go on Wikipedia after watching the movie and you're like, wait a second. He, Ray Kroc had three wives. They only mentioned two in this movie, and they skipped the middle wife. All right, whatever. So, you know, this is not a movie I would necessarily recommend people rush out to. It's the sort of thing where if, you, if it eventually winds up on streaming or on cable or on, you know, VOD or whatever, you know, if you're interested in the subject, then it might be okay. It's not terrible. Keaton is good, but it's just – it, it seems like a huge missed opportunity. That's the best way to put it. Yeah, I have no interest in that movie at all. Well, no. I probably didn't convince you to find some interest in no, it. No, I don't know if you have interest in the movie that I saw either. It is Patriot's Day, yeah. the second of Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg's double feature about American tragedies in which Mark Wahlberg plays <laughs> both a blue-collar everyman and, and a superhero yes, who can and, save and the like day. And a guy who happens to always be there in the middle of the action. And the guy who cries cathartically on behalf of America at the end of both of these movies. Seriously. Uh, it's a very, very weird double feature. And I will say, <clears throat> Deepwater Horizon it becomes like this kind of more traditional action movie, which I think for like when, when you know, the, the kind of catastrophe starts happening. Whereas Patriot's Day, which is about the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, it, it's... <sighs> You know, it tries to be a movie about this community, about everyone involved, but and then kind of uses Mark Wahlberg as his fictional character who can thread through a lot of the accounts. I don't think that this movie is maybe, I've heard some people like call it like deeply offensive and all of that. I think if you find the making of, of kind of recent-ish tragedies into movies in general offensive, I can absolutely understand you not wanting to see this one. I mean, I think in in ways, the movie's pleasant surprises are the things that it doesn't do monstrously, like the brothers, uh, Jokar and Tamarian, are not portrayed as anything other than like kind of like, like fools, like, you know, like that, like as like two dudes who kind of like decide to do this grandiose thing, but are also like obsessed with mixed martial arts and sitting on the couch watching TV and, you know, uh, it, it it kind of allows them a bit of like humanity and ridiculousness that I, I think I was expecting something worse uh, from this. But it is still like this, this weird, le- it is like a weird leveraging of this recent, you know, attack and like awfulness for the purpose of an uplifting movie to supposedly bring us all together mm-hmm. and unite in Mark Wahlberg's cleansing <laughs> tears. But <laughs> did you I, like uh, Deepwater Horizon? I liked it okay. I think maybe mm-hmm. it's a slightly better movie than Patriot's Day, though mm-hmm. Patriot's Day I think is a more interesting movie. Uh-huh. Uh but I just I I I really have to question what Berg and Wahlberg are doing in wanting to make these movies again and again. You know, in some ways, the best parts of both of them are the parts where Wahlberg is just kind of like busting balls with like his coworkers. You know, like I would love to see Mark Wahlberg make a hangout comedy because I think I'm very tired of him doing this weird role in which he is like America's, he wants to be the embodiment of this particular 
American spirit, you mm-hmm. know, that I think is only is like sincere in some ways and deeply phony in others. Mm-hmm. Did you see Daddy's Home? I didn't see Daddy's Home. You need to watch Daddy's Home. All right. I believe that's, that's your, available. That's your homework assignment. I believe that was recently became available for streaming. So. I think it did. So I will I will check that out. Yes. A palate cleanser from all this uh, Mark Wahlberg machismo. All right. Let's get to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on the show by counting down some new releases just added to streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have shared with us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then we give you one film that we've each chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists on Netflix. Allison, would you like me to go first yeah, or would you like to go why first? Why don't you go first? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, give me three new releases then. I will then. Okay. First up, new on Hulu is Drug War, the 2012 film from prolific Hong Kong director Johnny Toe. This one is about a cop who busts a drug lord and then uses him to help him bring down this big drug ring. I, I really like this movie, as I do most Johnny Toe movies when I see them. He's too prolific for me. I'm invariably, whenever I see one of his movies, I'm like, that was great. I'm so glad I saw it. It's, I'm all caught up now. They're like, oh, no, he's actually made two more movies since this one that you need to see. Um, so I, I just I can't keep up. But every time I see one of his movies, I like it. I've probably only seen maybe half, probably way less than half, frankly. But if you're not a Johnny Toe fan, if you haven't seen his other stuff, this is a good place to start. Why not? They're all good. Uh, that's Drug War on Hulu. Next up, also on Hulu, I have another tale of cops and robbers, The Untouchables from 1987. This is Brian De Palma's adaptation of Elliot Ness's memoir about his battle with organized crime and Al Capone. In this version, the movie version, there's also a TV series, uh, Kevin Costner plays Elliot Ness, Robert De Niro plays Capone, and Sean Connery plays one of the members of Ness's crew, The Untouchables. Uh, He won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this performance. Uh, I've only seen this movie one time. I was I've been wanting to rewatch it since I saw De Palma, the documentary about Brian De Palma last year. Uh, but it's you know it's it's not one that's sort of like a typical De Palma movie. It doesn't necessarily feel, at least to me, like you know sort of the the big De Palma hits. Although this might be financially one of his biggest hits, but just not maybe not the most personality. But uh, yeah, I want to revisit this one, and now I can because it is available on Hulu, The Untouchables. Finally, It Follows, which we did mention on this show earlier, I believe, has been added to Netflix, this indie horror film. One of my favorites of the last couple of years. I think it's so good. It's great. It came out, I think, in 2014. Sort of an 80s throwback, has a very Nightmare on Elm Street vibe about a bunch of teenagers in suburban Detroit who are pursued by a mysterious supernatural force. That can only be, well, basically, like, it, it is passed sexually from person to person. It can only be kind of escaped by passing it along to another sexual partner. Uh, it's a very atmospheric movie, very scary, but also very smart. If you heard about it but haven't seen it yet, it's time to check it out. It follows. It is available on Netflix. All right. Well, how about two listener recommendations? Our first comes from listener Paul Stevens. He writes, hey, Matt and Allison, I love the show and have been listening since the IFC days. I wanted to recommend a movie that I stumbled across a couple of days ago. I was looking for something quirky and silly, and it was that. But I was surprised by the depth of compassion that it showed and felt like it deserved a recommendation. It's streaming on Amazon Prime, the HBO movie Temple Grandin, the true story of an autistic woman who grew up in the 1960s and ended up changing the world of animal 
husbandry. It's an odd and obscure premise, but the filmmakers treat all the subjects with compassion and understanding. I thought I was signing up for a, a lame, beautiful mind ripoff and, and ended up getting pretty dusty in the room. It is worth a visit if you have the time. Thanks again for the wonderful podcast. That is from Paul. And his recommendation again was Temple Grandin, which you can find on Amazon Prime. Next up, we have a email from Eric Hodder. Eric writes, hi, I want to take a second to recommend Troll Hunters on Netflix. I started watching on a whim this last weekend, and one by one, my entire family wandered into the room and were sucked into the storyline. My four-year-old daughter and my 16- and 14-year-old sons were equally entertained and we're all chanting one more, one more as each episode ended. The storyline is extremely sophisticated and the animation is well above anything else I have seen on TV, including other DreamWorks Netflix shows. It plays like a very long involved feature film with deep character arcs and creative action scenes. I had no idea, but this is really a top shelf show. Super fun. And on a side note, my wife and I would like to know if Matt ever gets to eat any of the food the chefs bring in for the Saturday morning show on CBS. Does he ever hang out there waiting for the food segment to end so he can chow down? There is always way too much food. They have to do something with it. Give it to Matt Singer. Uh, And that email was from Eric. First of all, Eric, thank you for your recommendation. I'm going to have to check that show out. There's just too many shows on Netflix. I don't even even heard of this show. So, you know, uh, I appreciate when someone actually goes out of the way to say, well, there's a hundred shows on Netflix right now, but this one is good. It's worth watching. So that's great. Now, to answer your question, uh, I do make occasional appearances on the uh, – it's called CBS This Morning Saturday. And every time I'm there, because it's like – I think it's their a weekly segment. They do this thing called The Dish where they have like a famous chef in and they cook a lot of food. And I have never, not once, gotten a bite of that food. And they make you sit there and look at how good it looks on TV, but they don't share it. I, I, I don't even – I guess it winds up maybe in the offices where the staff works because I guess the staff deserves to eat this food or something. But uh, no, I have never gotten to eat the food, and frankly, it's an outrage, and I'm very upset about it. So thank you for giving me a moment to uh, vent about that. Okay, and one from your Netflix, My List. You gave me number four, and my number four movie uh, this time is Skip Trace. Skip Trace. The plot description is to capture a crime lord who killed his partner and kidnapped his partner's daughter, a Hong Kong detective teams with a smart Alec American gambler. And do you know the, the identities of these two men? Jackie Chan. Yes. And Johnny Knoxville. That is correct. Do you know who directed Skip Trace? Harlan. Boy, you are batting a thousand, Allison. Good job. <laughs> Netflix tells me it is, quote, exciting and goofy. So uh, I put this one on my, my list recently. Uh, I've I got to be honest. I don't know if I'm going to watch it, but it's on there. It's on there. Skip Trace. One word. All right, Allison, it's your turn. Are you ready with some new releases? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, new to Amazon Prime is Camera Person, one of the best docs of the year. It is the, uh, I don't think it's a directorial debut necessarily, but it's directed by Kirsten Johnson, who is a well-known cinematographer who has worked on a lot of docs from like documentarians that you whose names you will know. This is this superb montage she has made of footage while shooting these various docs, uh, knit together into what is both a memoir and a meditation on the camera as anything other than objective. I don't, like, this is one of those movies that is so difficult to describe and so wonderful when you watch it. Uh, I would really recommend it. That is on Amazon Prime. 
New to Netflix is Aquarius. This is, I'm going to just maul this name, Clever Mendoza Filho's film uh, in which Sonia Braga gives what is a truly magnificent performance. I think one of the kind of undersung uh, great performances from last year as Clara, who is a former music journalist and a widow living in this gorgeous art deco building in uh, Recife, who is drawn into a battle with a developer who wants her out. And uh, as in Under the Shadow, she quickly finds herself the only resident in an apartment building, though in her case, she's just trying to save her home. Uh, it's, it's a really rich movie. It is on Netflix. And finally, new to Fandor, a cult film from my 90s youth, Six String Samurai. Oh, yes. Directed by Lance Mangia wow. uh, and uh, starring Jeffrey Falcon, I believe his name is, the <laughs> Buddy Holly style guitarist and swordsman traveling around a post apocalyptic U.S. wasteland towards Lost Vegas, where King Elvis has died and all comers have been summoned to battle to be the new king of rock and roll. Uh, never went anywhere for most of the people involved in no. making this movie, but it is a really silly good time. Uh, and one <laughs> it, I haven't seen for years and years, so I was happy to see it turned up. I hadn't thought about it for a really long time. Yeah, I think I saw it once. I don't remember anything about it. But if you asked me to like draw or describe the the VHS box art from memory just from seeing it at every blockbuster I ever went to yes. in my youth, I would have no problem doing that. Every blockbuster in America was required by law to carry a copy of Six String Samurai. Well, there you go. Now it is streaming on <laughs> Fandor. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. We've got one from Mario from Glendale. Actually, not a bunch. You're totally cheating, Mario, but we appreciate it. So I'm just going to go ahead and read these through. Mario writes, I wanted to highlight a string of Amazon original series, all of which have been very well cast and have an emotional range from bleak to sublime. First up is the two seasons of The Man in the High Castle, a revisionist historical drama which tells a what-if story of the Third Reich winning World War II. Next is Goliath, an L.A.-based legal drama with Golden Globe winner Billy Bob Thornton, Maria Bello, and William Hurt. It's a gripping potboiler that doesn't entirely stick the landing. <clears throat> Tignataro's autobiographical One Mississippi is a dark comedy dealing with the death of a parent and a cancer diagnosis that only gets funny towards the end when a little son comes back into Tig's life. Fleabag, which we've talked about, is a very human and funny comedy about a single girl making her way in London, and Catastrophe is about a married couple and their misadventures in London as well, and features some of Carrie Fisher's final performances. Last, and only because it's the most optimistic, is Mozart in the Jungle, a lovely series about a fictional New York-based symphony. It is completely the other side of the coin from Man in the High Castle, celebrating music, creativity, and friendship. And considering our current political climate, High Castle is what we, sh we could be, Mozart in the Jungle is what we should be but all of these series are quality and worth watching p.s a quick shout out to my brother mike's movie tales of halloween streaming <laughs> on netflix ain't too proud to plug oh no, shameless i, I love you it you know i love it i, I love, love it too uh thank you for that mario i feel like people you know amazon's original series don't get nearly as much public discussion as netflix's tend to except from the golden globes except from the golden, golden globes. globes are the biggest amazon prime fans in the I planet i know goliath goliath i know I've, i haven't seen any of goliath i've seen two episodes of goliath I don't know that it is the thing I would have been like that. It's That's the, the best defining performance, TV performance of, the year. of the year. But, you know, maybe people will check it out. Thank you for that, Mario. And I've got one from Martin from snowy Germany. 
Maybe it's time to rewatch Equilibrium, according to Letterbox. It's available for <laughs> Maybe. on iTunes and Amazon. While not a great movie, it was entertaining. And in terms of ingredients and heritage, I would put it at 20% Matrix, 30% Fahrenheit 451, 10% 1984, 25% stylized vacuum, 15% vocabulary mumbo jumbo. Thanks for the show and keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you for that, Martin, especially the uh, the percentage b- breakdown, which is uh, what I appreciate from all derivative sci-fi movies is, uh, is that part. So that is Equilibrium. It is available for rent. Okay. And one film chosen by my list. You gave me number seven, which is a documentary called Best and Most Beautiful Things. Here is a description from IMDb. In this joyous coming-of-age story, a precocious 20-year-old woman searches for love and freedom in a surprising sex-positive community. Living with her mother in rural Maine, spirited Michelle Smith is legally blind and diagnosed with autism, but she chases big dreams against all odds. Uh, I feel like this this kind of description soft-pedals a bit that the main character is... Kind of like participates in the kink community, which is the like thing that I think a lot of people brought this documentary up about, which is that it features someone who is disabled in some ways and uh, and yet has this very vivid sexual life, which is something that you don't often see on screen uh, in terms of how disabled characters are portrayed. So uh, I added it to my my list, and there it is, sitting there, there at go. number seven. All right. Let's get to our listener's choice options for our next show. We have a trio of recent-ish releases. Actually, that's not true. Two recent releases, both of which you may have just heard Allison talk about, and one slightly older film that I know I personally am very interested to watch. Not that you should vote for it. You can vote for whatever you want. No, but... you should vote for it. All right, vote case. for it. Yeah, yeah, come on, vote for it. Uh, I think you have the first pick, Allison. I do. It is a film I just mentioned. It is Aquarius on Netflix. You know, this film uh, got a lot of praise uh, can, and then it kind of got screwed uh, the Brazilian government for political reasons involving pr- a protest that was done at Cannes and all of that, and the kind of current shakeup. Refused to submit it as their Academy Award uh, foreign language film submission when it seemed like a film that would be likely to maybe make it to the final five. Um, so, I mean, that's, there's something interesting there, but I think there's also a lot that's really interesting in this movie about its portrayal of like an older woman, its portrayal of like it, how it kind of treats politics uh, and, and just like, it's like, it's, it is like a kind of like very like, as I said, like rich movie with uh, a lot going on in terms of like these ideas of femininity and getting older and, uh, and trying to hold on to your space in, in an area that's changing rapidly. So that's your first pick. It is our first option. It is Aquarius on Netflix. Yeah, I, that was one that I heard great things about it can, but it, I, I have to admit I, I missed it. It did, I just didn't, it, it, I didn't see it and I heard it great things. It didn't but get it, like a huge release. It, yeah, it didn't seem to sort of catch on uh stateside it seemed to kind of in fact i don't even remember when it came out i just know i know it did but i didn't it kind of just passed me by but i've heard such great things i i would actually be very happy to see that one even though that wasn't the one i was suggesting people vote for uh, a few seconds ago so i would be happy with that one as well one question you, you said that developers want her house yes do does she put balloons up the chimney and fly it away 
You know, it's a building. It's an apartment building. Oh, it's an apartment building, not a house. Yeah. Oh, that would never work. It'll, I know. Only works How with, many buildings would you have to That only to works with houses. It only works with, with right. adorable You're little right. cottages. How many balloons would you have to buy, honestly? Too many. Too many. Too many. Okay. Well, that's option one. Option two is uh, the other film that Allison has already mentioned. It is Camera Person, directed by Kirsten Johnson. And that is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, I premiered at Sundance last year. Allison already talked about it. I have seen that one. I thought it was. I don't think I liked it as much as as you did, and and as quite as much as the uh, the consensus was on that one. I liked it quite a bit, and I, I think it's uh, beautiful and fascinating. But I, 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 you know, it didn't make my top ten list or anything like that. And but but uh, it's a it's a fascinating film, and even if people don't vote for it. And I don't know, maybe it'll win, but I would say it's worth seeking out. It's worth people checking out. It's it's a very unique movie, unique documentary, uh, and that's it. Is there anything else to say about it, I guess? I mean, I think that, you know, we talk a lot in terms, like, critics, I think, what, tend to be obsessed with documentaries that further the documentary form and push the boundaries of the documentary right. form, even though maybe ironically this year, the kind of movie that is dominating the discussion, which we talked about, is a, a fairly straightforward, stylistically right. talking, talking head, head archival footage documentary, yes. um, the O.J. Simpson documentary. But I, I think that camera person makes you think about the form mm. in ways that I, I think really stuck with me. And certainly... And it, that we I can mean, certainly talk about. Yes. And the whole Wilmore test of documentaries about, is this oh, yes. is this an, a good movie, not just a good subject matter or interesting topic? I mean, this is one of like the best examples ever, because it almost isn't about a specific subject at all. It, right. is, it is more about making it, documentaries. Right. And, like, it's about documenting things on camera. Yes. Yes. So there's a lot to talk about there. Option two, camera person, available on Amazon Prime. Option three is an older movie. Uh, Not that much older, though. It is a movie called The Forest for the Trees, which is streaming on Tubi TV. And we wanted to give a shout out to Kimber Myers, a listener who actually is now working at Tubi TV, who gave us uh, a tip that the film is streaming on this site. Um, It's not one that I think has been available for streaming very often. So that was just good to know. This is a directorial debut of Maren Ada. Uh, It, you know, she is the director of Tony Erdman, my personal favorite film of 2016. Was it your number one? It was my number one. It was my number two. So yes. a movie we hugely love. We love, yes. She also directed the excellent Everyone Else in Another 2009. Another very, very good movie. A very good movie. Uh, this movie, I think it was even her, like, she was working on it in school, and it was supposed to be her thesis film at first, and then it became a full-fledged mm. feature. It's about, a, here's a description. A young German school teacher begins a new job, a fresh start to a hopeful future. She has a vision of her life as a trusted teacher and beloved member of her new neighborhood, and then things begin to slip. Plans don't quite match her expectations, and she falls behind in her life. Unable to manage the casual cruelty of everyday life becomes a burden of loneliness and a source of chaos she can't escape. Oof. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, Marinata is like one of those people who has this great ability to find warmth in dark situations and the kind of like darkness in like regular human interactions Mm -hmm. that I think is really something else. Mm -hmm. And so I want it. I would love to see this first film of hers. Yeah. Give us the excuse because we love both of our other movies. Give us the excuse to, to see this first one and and talk about it. Yeah. And that's on Tubi TV, which is ad supported. So you don't need a subscription to that. 
All right, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? It's up to you. Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, January 23rd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out around Tuesday, January 31st. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all of the movies and the occasional TV series we discuss on the episode. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter at Matt Singer and at Allison Wilmore. And you can find the show uh, at Filmspotting SVU. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. Uh, that's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions uh, that are out there new on various services. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>